Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is the Dry Cleaner Cast. Welcome to the Dry Cleaner Cast, a podcast that takes a new look at the war on terror, its legacy, and espionage in the 21st century. This podcast is written, edited, and presented by Chris Carr. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. As a listener of this podcast, you can get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com forward slash drycleanercast. Apparently, there are over 180,000 audio titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. So Audible is perfect for those on the move. On this month's podcast, I am joined by Brian Dunning of the website Skeptoid, and he and I discuss conspiracy theories and fake news. If by the end of the episode you want to find out more about conspiracy theories, you can actually get John Ronson's great book, Them, on Audible. I hope you enjoy the show. Opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the filmmakers and sponsors of the film, The Dry Cleaner. Brian, welcome to the Dry Cleaner Cast. Hey, thanks for having me on. Brian, can you tell me how you came to be interested in conspiracy theories and how your website Skeptoid came about? Well, yeah, I was doing uh, the, the the podcast Skeptoid, which is typically about uh, paranormal myths, urban legends, all just kinds of weird things. And uh, I'd been doing that podcast for a while, and people started re- to request uh uh, certain conspiracy theories, because there's quite a lot of crossover between urban legends and conspiracy theories, you know, uh, everything from 9-11 on, on down to the moon landing hoax. And uh, so uh, it, it turned out that conspiracy theories were one of the more popular topics on the show. It's something that there seems to always be a lot of interest in, and there's certainly a lot of passion in uh, in the conspiracy theory community. The people who uh, who are into conspiracy theories take them very, very seriously in many cases. They do. Was there a particular time when um, kind of conspiracy theory requests peaked on your website? No, I can't say it's ever peaked. <laughs> it's a constant, uh, constant interest, and um, I constantly get challenged on them, which uh, is one of, the, one of the reasons why I ended up taking comments off of the website uh, was because it just became a forum for people to spout all kinds of anti-Semitism and, and uh, just a lot of nonsense. So um, I improved the quality of the website by removing comments. Yeah, you're not alone. Actually, a lot of people are doing that now, and I think it's a good thing. The Internet, sadly, seems to be the place of just trolls and all sorts of things now, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. And it, it uh, cleans up the website and makes it a much better resource. Excellent. Now, um, we're about to go down the rabbit hole, so I'd like to just define a few things before we go on our journey. So can, <laughs> <All right. laughs> can you define what a conspiracy theory is for us and how it differs from an actual conspiracy? Well, yeah, I, and that's, that's something that, uh, that a lot of people have def- different definitions on. When I, when I give mine, um, I, I almost always get challenged on that. The way, I, the way I define the difference between a conspiracy theory and a conspiracy is that... Uh, the conspiracy theory has not yet been discovered. It is, in fact, a, a future prediction that a discovery will eventually be made 
of something that the believer believes to be the case. Uh, conspiracies, of course, happen all the time. Anytime criminals get together and plan a crime, well, there's your conspiracy. And conspiracy theories are uh, the belief that one happened uh, for which there's not yet any evidence. It has not yet been discovered by law enforcement or the media. Uh, so it's something that's just theorized. Therefore, it's a conspiracy theory. Excellent. Now, another term that's become popular uh, since the current presidential elections is the term fake news. What is fake news? Well, I, I don't really think it's anything, anything more than um, than has always been. You know, people write uh, bogus claims, bogus news stories to, you know, as a satire or as a joke or trying to see if they can fool people for fun. That's always been the case. I mean, that's been the case for centuries ever since we've had newspapers that's been the case there's and i don't really don't think there's any different now than there has always been it's just that now it's been the term was um sort of co-opted to say hey everything people are saying about me online is not true but i think it's just been um a recent popularization of the term um sort of as a as a self-defense mechanism yeah yeah and um well, fun enough, one people who d definitely do use it as a self-defense mechanism are um, the popular conspiracy theorists themselves. And uh, one in particular, um, Alex Jones at Infowars, seems to have uh, taken uh, quite a shining to the term. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> um, so another, another popular term is false flag operation. What is a false flag operation? Well, of course, the most famous false flag operation was in uh, The Princess Bride, the movie where... Mm. Uh, <laughs> the the three guys the uh, the giant the uh, smart guy and the swordsman were going to kidnap the princess uh, kill her and then frame the uh, frame the other country for it and thus start a war yeah and so that was in fact a false flag operation it's when a a one one country will typically stage a false attack against themselves or somebody else in order to trigger a war between themselves in another country or between two other countries. And it's it's not something that happens very often. In fact, if you look at the Wikipedia article on false flags, there's, you know, maybe only, you know, six or ten examples and they're all really strange small things that almost nobody's ever heard of. You know, the you know the the the, the Sino Russo War of fourteen twelve. <laughs> some, some strange, really offbeat thing like that. They really really don't happen that much in, in the modern world. There are a few examples, but uh, mm. few and far between. But they certainly make a good convention for movies. I mean, I, I think of that James Bond film, it Tomorrow Never Dies, where um, a, a sort of journalist is standing in for Rupert Murdoch is trying to start a war between Britain and China. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that movie. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I do yeah. remember that now, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a... And it's a perfect example. And, and, and the fact that uh, the fact that this uh, the phenomena does exist to one degree or another has made it a favorite tool of conspiracy theorists because they can point to anything and say that's a false flag operation. They point to the the Sandy Hook school shooting as they believe it was a false flag that uh, at least those who believe that it actually happened believe that it was a false flag that uh, the government sent in soldiers to kill all the students and uh, as a way to provoke outrage against um, gun policy and, and try to get uh, 
try to get the public support behind gun control. There was a there was a, a really famous uh, mass shooting in Australia a long time ago, the Port Arthur massacre, where exactly the same claims were made. People believed that it was some sort of government assassin that went down there, killed all of these people in a restaurant, and it was a a tool to sway public opinion against uh, gun rights and get guns banned. Yeah. Yeah, and I suppose, I suppose in the States, I mean, you know, this is the interesting thing about these conspiracy theories. It's not like that there has been stricter gun control since Sandy Hook. Um, you know, if it was a globalist agenda, they haven't really succeeded, have they? No, and, and, and of course, the, the data shows that it has exactly the opposite effect. Whenever, whenever you have a anti-gun administration or anti-gun sentiment, uh, then gun sales soar. And whenever you have a pro-gun administration or a lack of anti-gun sentiment out there, gun sales flatten. So it has exactly the opposite effect as, what is, as would be intended. And that's the case with most things conspiracy theory related. Yeah. Well, um, I'm going to, I have a confession to make, uh, and I say this with much embarrassment. I was once a conspiracy theorist myself between 2003 and 2009, um, and I got into conspiracy theories through what is known as the 9-11 truth movement. Ah. Yeah. Amazing <laughs> that, that you got out. Not many do. No, it's true. <laughs> it's true. Um, I mean, look, 9-11 deeply shocked me, and I was, it's not like I sort of just slipped into it. It took me a, it took me a while, actually. It was the kind of controversy over Iraq in 2003 that kind of um, started my trip down the, the rabbit hole. Um, and it was an interesting ride. I met a lot of fascinating people from academics to former spies to just well-meaning people who were just scared and concerned about world events. And I also met a few UFO nuts as well. Um, and the conspiracy crowd I met were an eclectic mix of people, and I find it hard to say what a conspiracy theorist looks like or what they think. As I know from experience, the most hotly debated topic among conspiracy theorists is what is the actual conspiracy? Um, Brian, do you have any observations on conspiracy theorists and what makes people kind of vulnerable to conspiracy theories? Well, I think that it's, um, and it's not just I think. I mean, the substantial research has been done on this. Uh, that it's uh, largely uh, goes back to an evolved trait, which uh, which is often described as agency detection or uh, similar names like that. And the basic idea is that uh, if you're the proto-human out on the savanna and you see a rustling in the bushes, you hear something uh, rustling out there, if you think, oh, ho-hum, that's nothing, it's probably something mundane, you're more likely to get eaten by the saber-toothed cat. But if you, if you fear everything, if you fear that there is a evil purpose behind everything, you're more likely to run for the trees, and, and that population gradually will become the dominant one. So paranoia, in fact, is something that evolution selects for. So it's something that is hardwired into our genes. We are all hardwired to be paranoid, and that's a defense mechanism to uh, protect ourselves. It makes a lot of sense because conspiracy theories are not exactly a, just a phenomena of the 20th or 21st century, are they? That would be an interesting exploration to look at some of the, the old conspiracy theories from centuries ago, which is not something I've really done very much of, but that would be an interesting project. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, the only reason I, I think of it is because... Um, from experience, some of the stuff um, I can't remember exactly, but some of the things David, quite, um, sorry, David Ike would quote 
Um, some of them dated back to sort of texts from I think the 17th or 18th century occasionally. Um, uh, especially stuff around the Illuminati and things like that, but we can go into that in a minute. But, um, yeah. but um, one other thing, actually, I've noticed as well um, in post my conspiracy life is how a lot of bad ideas are kind of becoming mainstream, uh, from the anti-vax movement to homeopathy to climate change. One thing I've noticed through my interactions with people on social media is that people tend to react more to headlines and memes without critically engaging with the content. People don't tend to Google the, um, the author and look at their past work and what others have said of that author. But there's also a flip side in which people tend to dismiss things because such and such person owns such and such outlets or the outlet is part of the mainstream media. Um, now, you made a great film many years ago on critical thinking. Can you just give us a brief crash course into critical thinking and how to detect bad ideas? A uh, quick one? Well, I, I, <laughs> <laughs> Take your time, feel free. <laughs> Here Be Dragons it was a, a film I made way back in 2008, which gave a, a general critical overview of the whole sort of skepticism type movement. Uh, it talked about some of the logical fallacies that we get exposed to every day, product claims, claims of uh, miracle solutions to this or that, uh, and also uh, quick awareness for how to spot conspiracy theories. And, it's like, and, and so what, what I'm doing now is uh, finally I'm working on a, uh, a much better uh, follow-up film called Principles of Curiosity. And this film centers around a simple three-step process or how to tell what's true from what's not. And I call these three steps the three C's. They are challenge, consider, and conclude. So when we first hear something, we see something online, uh, something that I saw this morning as an example of fake news, in fact, was uh, Sweden bans Christmas lights because it offends Muslims. So we're going to challenge, consider, and conclude. The first thing we do is we challenge this to see if it's even true at all. And that one falls apart quite quickly. We can find that there's, there is no truth to that. It's been debunked on various websites. But when you look at something uh, that's, uh, that's more closer to reality, um, we can move on to the second step, which is consider. We consider alternate explanations. And I talk about the importance of going to the experts in the field to see what they say. People may be inclined to distrust authority slash experts. However, at this point, we're considering alternate explanations. We want to collect all the alternate explanations we can. We would be foolish to dismiss some of the most popular and best supported explanations. So I consider everyone to see what the experts have to say. And the final C is to conclude. We look at all of these uh, possible explanations that we have considered and we conclude which one is the best. And I provide some tools for doing that. Occam's razor, for example. So that's, uh, that's, that's my, um, that's my current, um, my current rundown. That, that film is, uh, should be coming out in April, uh, ideally. And, um, so the, the three C's will be out there for. A recommended process. And will there be any uh, musical interludes? I know you, uh, you specialise in some of those in some of your <laughs> films. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's a shame. <laughs> no, although the film does have excellent, awesome music in it. Good. Um, but uh, no, what, what, uh, what he's talking about, listeners, is that every 50 episodes, 
with a few exceptions where I'm just too busy and get can't get around to it. Every 50 episodes of my podcast, basically once a year, is a, a lavish musical number. And <laughs> they are lavish. I actually did sing in one of them. Most, m- m- most of them I don't actually sing in, and that's a misconception people have. <laughs> I get people who know how to sing to do the singing. And they're very good. I, 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 there's been some great ones, actually. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> there have. I, they're, I, I think they're very good. Mm. With a couple of exceptions, the ones that I did completely on my own without employing actual composers and engineers and musicians and things. <laughs> well, we've all got to start somewhere. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's when you're down to one week before the show is supposed to drop. You can't exactly go out and start hiring composers and thinking about ideas. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Right. Um, Brian, thank you for that. I'd like to just um, have a look at some of the popular conspiracies out there and sort of do our best to go through them one by one. Um, so the first, oh, right. So, Let's um, do this. I'm yes. pumped. I'm fired up. <laughs> <laughs> so let, and we'll go we'll tackle i'm going to try and tackle them chronologically i think because i think um <laughs> I, I think i'm going from oldest to newest but i could be wrong um so the first who up, killed jesus christ well that's a good one <laughs> who did kill jesus christ <laughs> uh, it was the uh, man on the grassy knoll wasn't it <laughs> Uh, yes, <laughs> he gets around oh, um so the, the first up is uh, the illuminati now, the Illuminati are apparently a busy global cabal who secretly manipulates events behind the scenes with the goal to bring out about a, a new world order. Can you tell us about the Illuminati and the origins of that conspiracy theory? Yeah, the Ill- Illuminati is often considered to be, you know, the the ultimate peak of the pyramid, the, the ultimate power behind everything. Uh, you know, even more powerful than the Zionists, the New World Order, the Bohemians, uh, what have you, uh, the Freemasons. Um, but but like, uh, like so many of these, there's actually a grain of truth. There was actually, uh, for a time, a group called the Illuminati. And it happened, I believe, in, uh, um, in the 1700s uh, in Germany. Uh, so much of this uh, sort of this, uh, uh, I don't want to say pagan ritualism, um, the, the sort of these mystic orders, they, they, so many of them came out of Germany. And uh, the Illuminati was formed by primarily one guy, but uh, other people got involved as um, they were basically outcasts from the Freemasons. The Freemasons were more well-established, and uh, they kind of tried to compete with the Freemasons and were successful for a time until uh, there was a political climate in which uh, all such groups were made illegal. And that was basically the end of the Illuminati. And uh, to my knowledge... Um, it was never revived. Uh, so it only existed for, I think, around 40 or 50 years. And um, the name has just persisted, though. It was a great name, the the, uh, the Illuminated Ones, those who had the secret knowledge. Uh, and, uh, and and so I think believe that that's why uh, conspiracy theorists, some conspiracy theorists now believe that uh, the Illuminati still exist because they even had right there in their name that they were the illuminated ones, the ones who secretly had all the real knowledge. But you mentioned the Freemasons and the Illuminati, and particularly with the Freemasons, there's a lot of sort of an outsider looking in perspective and just speculating on on what they do. Is that why, do you think, um, these sort of conspiracy theories like around the Freemasons and the Illuminati kind of endure because there's a sort of sense of mystery about them? Definitely. That's one of the most uh, appealing things about conspiracy theories 
is because the, it's the, has the promise of secret knowledge, mm. the promise of having some superior insight, some superior perspective. And, uh, that's, that's something that conspiracy theorists believe that they have. Yeah. Um, they believe that they have secret insight that the public is not aware of into these giant machinations happening behind the scenes worldwide. So the Illuminati uh, seems like a very perfectly reasonable thing to them. And it's, it's I think those who, uh, who proceed and try to join a local Freemason lodge end up probably being pretty disappointed because if you've ever talked to a Mason about what they do at their meetings, it's, not very interesting, you know. They'll they'll do a small charity event to send uh, send some kid to a school or something, or uh, you know they they do they do minor civic works like that, and that's essentially the extent of their their global influence. I know when I was a conspiracy theorist, one of the things I actually found weirdly comforting in the idea of the Illuminati was that there was some sort of order to the perceived chaos in the world. Yeah, um, good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's what what are the underlying themes of of all of these uh, global cabal conspiracies is that all nations worldwide willingly give up their sovereignty in order to become subservient to this shadow cabal. Uh, I don't see Putin. I certainly don't see Trump uh, giving up their sovereignty in order to take orders from the shadow cabal. Um, and yet, that's kind of a fundamental uh, belief that all nations have done that, that they're all planning some secret one-world government uh, in which they all give up their individual sovereignty. Mm. And that's just, uh, there's really not a single person in the world who would be in favor of that. So it's just fundamentally goofy. It is. And it's, it's funny, actually, because like some of the very early um, Alex Jones videos, I think he was talking about sort of... Um, secret messages and directions on the back of road signs that were somehow put there by the United Nations for when they're going to take over America. And then eventually that theory kind of developed into, you know, into um, the globalists and the Illuminati and, and so on. Yeah, yeah. So um, we've yeah, no comment. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, and and we've mentioned this phrase "new world order" a few times, um, and it's incredibly popular among conspiracy theorists. Can you tell us the origin of that phrase? You know, I I wish I could. Um, I because I have I have tried to find it, and it seems to just have not a. It doesn't seem to have a specific origin because it has always meant basically exactly what it appears to mean, which is you know some some big change in, in, in the world. Uh, you could say the Romans were a new world order. Uh, you could say Alexander the Great was a new world order. And uh, so it, it's, not like, it's not like the Illuminati in that there actually was some group named that at some point. Uh, it, it's just been, uh, it's a common phrase in language that has sort of gradually, I would say, in the, over the 20th century, into the 21st century become sort of a rallying cry of, of the conspiracy theory crowd um, who believe that uh, there is a single world government in the process of being formed. Um, do you, have you ever come across anything that would suggest otherwise? Well, I be I, no. yeah, I couldn't say I, I could pin it down to a specific thing, but um, certainly I've seen it grow in popularity since the end of the Cold War. 
Um, and certain, sure. you know, politicians like uh, George Bush Senior used it a few times in reference to the Berlin Wall coming down and stuff like that. So as you're saying, it's kind of a natural, you know, it is a natural phrase. And there was a new world order coming out at the end of, you know, communism and the Cold War. Um, but beyond that, I, I haven't seen anything, you know, that, um, yeah. That sort yeah, of... and that, that's the perfect example of it. Just a, mm. a use of the actual words in common language. There was a new world order came out of the the um, dissolution of the Soviet uh, the Soviet Union, uh, and that becoming misinterpreted as an actual literal name for some organization or government uh, that uh, that the conspiracy theorists have latched onto. Yeah, actually, one th one extra conspiracy theory I'm going to throw in actually <laughs> because I forgot to ask you earlier was about um, the Bilderberg Group because they they are very much um, brought up a lot and and from my understanding um, the Bilderberg Group came about uh, with the formation of NATO but I could be wrong on that one I don't know if you have any thoughts on the Bilderberg Group yeah the the Bilderberg Group uh, was uh, was basically a group of of Western European nations and um, and the United States. It was Western Europe and the United States, specifically excluding other nations. Uh, and it was, oh my gosh, I did an episode on this, but it was a few years ago, and I can't quite remember. The, the, the guy who originally um, put it together, I want to say he was a member of the royal family in one of the Scandinavian nations, and I'm yeah. pretty sure that's correct. Yeah. Uh, do, you, do you happen to know? I honestly, I don't. Okay. Off the top of my head. <laughs> well, it's easy to look up. Yeah. It's easy to look up. And what he wanted to do was he wanted to have some. The Soviet Union was rising now, and he wanted the Western nations to have uh, some sort of a coordination on what to do about this. And there was all sorts of reasons not to do this at an official government level um, and rather to keep it at a private, unofficial level. And so what he did was he invited um, leaders not just from governments but from business, military people, just sort of a, a good cross-section of people. Um, and they all met at the Bilderberg Hotel and they had a, a meeting. They just discussed... Uh, Here's all the things that we think are going to happen geopolitically with, uh, with the Soviet Union. What what kinds of things? How should we respond? You know, if we should have a response. And here's what we talked about. You can all take this back to your associates back in your countries and do with this information what you will. That was basically the extent of it. Part of the advantage of having it be a private meeting, uh, obviously, is that it was going to be extremely difficult for any Soviet agents to get in there. Yeah. Uh, they um, did not keep uh, a log of what was said. They didn't record anything. They expressly forbid that and still do to this day. Yeah. Uh, and um, it's just continued. It hasn't been every year, but it's been a periodic uh, event. It doesn't meet at the same. They meet some different place around the world each year. And a lot of interesting people have gone. I know uh, Richard Branson has gone, Bill Gates has gone, uh, people, like, people like that. Just sort of influential people talking about, um, you know, hey, here's the, here's the latest changes in the world and mm. um, what to do. There's certainly nothing binding. I mean, you don't go there. The, the, the conspiracy theorists believe that uh, the world leaders go there and, and are given their orders. Here's <laughs> what you're supposed Here's how you have to run your country from now on. Yeah. And that's just silly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because there's, there's sort of... Um, 
people like Alex Jones, as you're saying, it's kind of saying the world leaders are getting their orders and they set the kind of agenda for this year. So this year is going to be about oil or war over water or something. You know? Yeah, they do publish. Um, they have their website and they do publish the things that they're going to talk about this year. Mm. And um, one of the interesting things nowadays, actually, um, with the Bilderberg Group, from what I've seen of the lists, um, it doesn't actually tend to be world leaders anymore. It tends to be just people who represent um, certain political parties. And, but it, it's very rarely now, it's, the, it's very rarely the leaders of the parties. I'm not sure that it really ever was. I think mm. there was, um, there have been, um, mm, again, it's been too long ago since I did the episode. Um, it, it's, it's been more minor representatives. Yeah. It's because it's not something that anyone wants to appear to be participating in in an official capacity. And indeed, in most countries, there is very little interest in participating in something like that in an official capacity. So it's it's invitational, but it's, you know, invitations are sent to people who express personal interest in going. And has Bilderberg, do you think, lost its relevance now? Um, you know, I, don't, I don't think so at all, no. because really it's exactly like um, going, if you're a doctor, it's exactly like going to a medical conference. Yeah. If you're a lawyer, it's like going to a lawyer conference. If you are involved in geopolitics... Certainly, you're going to want to go to something like the Bilderberg Conference because that's exactly what it is. It's an industry conference for people involved in uh, global issues. Yeah, I must admit, it does sound fascinating. I'd love an invitation, but we'll see what happens. (laughs) I know John Ronson tried to sneak in and was unable to. Yeah, he wrote that book, Uh, Is It Them?, Uh, which goes into conspiracy theories and he talks about um, he he tried to sneak into Bohemian Grove. and uh, yeah, it was sort of at the beginning of uh, he. Well, John Ronson claims he may have um, helped um, unleash Alex Jones onto us, <laughs> so he might be responsible for Alex Jones. <laughs> yeah, that you uh, should be in jail if that's the case. <laughs> I think he's very embarrassed about it, but anyway. Um, now we'll move on to a, another conspiracy theory, and unfortunately, this one is. Um, is a slightly more serious one, um, and it's it's basically it's an anti-Semitic idea that there's a kind of global Jewish conspiracy. And you mentioned it earlier with Zionists and things like that. And one of the one of the key texts that's quoted as proof of this sort of global Jewish conspiracy is a book called The Protocols of Zion. But this book's actually a well-known fake. Um, can you tell us a bit about it and how it came to be? Yeah, and I think that's the most important thing about it is that it was almost immediately. Um, established as a fake, yeah. proven to be a fake, and yet among certain communities, it is still uh, republished. You can still find it in print, and it's uh, basically what happened was. Oh, let me see if I can remember when this was. Um, I want to say around the turn of the, the turn of the twentieth century. So it was around around uh, nineteen hundred, around the, around the time of the Russian Revolution. Um, and what what they did was they were basically just trying to make blame all of Russia's problems on the Jews, as was so popular uh, in Europe uh, in the early part of the 20th century. And <laughs> heck, let's be honest, it's still popular today. Uh, and what what they did was, um, and there's a fascinating history. It reads almost like a spy novel. How this yeah. uh, how yeah. this document came to be. Um, oh my gosh! I'm just going to rec. Can I say I recommend that everyone go to skeptoid.com and search for Zionist and listen to that episode. It's only about a 10-minute episode, and you'll get this whole story of how the Protocols of Zion came to be. But basically, it was a it was an old book 
that was uh, written by uh, Napoleon III. Um, no, it wasn't written no, by... No, it was, it was Maurice Jolet wrote it. Um, okay. Yeah. And it was about... It, and he... It was... Okay, it was about... It was about uh, what Napoleon... Uh, how Napoleon was planning to take over the world. And I think it was a satire, too. Yes, it was, yeah. Um, so it was kind of a... a, 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 a I wouldn't say a joke book. It was more like a, a, a political satire about here's why we should be worried about Napoleon III. And it kind of went off the deep end saying, here's the thing he's going to do, just like Obama is going to put us all into concentration camps. And um, so what happened then around the time of the Russian Revolution, someone got a hold of this book and almost literally just went through and replaced the word French with Jews. And so it became this book about how the Jews are planning to take over the world. And that is literally what happened. I, I know I, I'm just saying that's literally what happened when I've just stumbled over not being able to remember a single specific in the last 10 minutes. <laughs> and there's some, there's some irony in there. <laughs> but, well, this... but that was discovered very, very quickly. As soon as it was published, almost immediately was discovered, hey, this is, this is just this old book from, from the 1800s about, about, uh, about Napoleon. And, um, Nevertheless, it, it had some influence. Uh, it did play some role in, um, in um, uh, stoking the flames of anti-Semitism in, in Russia and, uh, and continues to this day, although to a much smaller degree since it's so thoroughly established as a hoax. Uh, but the content of the book is very appealing to anti-Semitic groups. And so they, they keep it going and they still pass it around and hope that somebody will be influenced by it. Yeah, I mean, it's very popular among neo-Nazi groups, and I think you can still, you know, you can buy it on a lot of neo-Nazi websites and things like that. The um, the book it's based on, The Protocol of Zion, is called um, A Dialogue in Hell Between Machiavelli and Montanescu. Oh my um, God, yes, that's right. And it's, Very good. It is a play, um, and it's basically, it's literally Machiavelli and Montanescu in hell talking about how to sort of take over the world and having a back and forth. Uh, about their different theories there's always like a kind of competition between them um and yes you're right it was a satire um and it was sort of aimed at napoleon the third i think it was yeah um it's it you can get the the book um i actually interviewed the guy who translated it um many many years ago and um for a documentary unfortunately never got completed uh, just because i could never find anybody to actually um uh, to fund it <laughs> so I've filmed this interview and I've still got it in my archive but uh, oh, very good. yeah it's with this guy uh, his name is John Wagner um, and he was a sort of an American academic who was just fascinated by um, French history and he was um, and he became very knowledgeable about Maurice Jolet and, and sort of felt sorry for Maurice Jolet because his book um, is only famous because of the Protocols of Zion and it was never analysed um, for its own merits um, and so he wanted to do something about that so he translated it from French into English um, and uh, I believe it's even been staged as a play in France back in the sort of um, early 2000s but I'd have to double check that but uh, now the question is has anyone has anyone staged the protocols of Zion version of it <laughs> probably in <laughs> in certain camps and <laughs> but, um, we won't uh, <laughs> who knows oh dear the local neo-nazi amateur dramatics group probably <laughs> but uh, <laughs> there we go well in my own defense since yeah. you've just given a far more 
a far more thorough rundown of this book than I was able to recall. In my own defense, I'll just say that we're extremely busy working on the this the, the movie that we're uh, I was gone all last week. We were shooting in Death Valley. I'm mm. gone all next week. We're shooting at the Huntsville, um, Huntsville, Alabama, the U.S. Uh, Space and Rocket Center. Oh wow! Um, and so I'm just I'm just all over the place, and I was uh, uh, not able to do as much uh, background research as I would have liked to uh, for this interview. But uh, thank you for having faith in my ability to remember. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you even more for knowing the information so, so thoroughly yourself. <laughs> well, that particular one, yeah, I don't know, that particular one, actually, funnily enough, it was that text um, when it came up that kind of pushed me away from conspiracy theories because, um, you know, after oh, very... Yeah, after a very basic kind of search, and because I can't remember who it was, but somebody came up to me and said, oh, have you read this book, The Protocols of Zion? And, um, and I'd never heard of it before, fun enough, um, until that person asked me about it. And that was in about 2006, I think it was. And then I, um, and it was another conspiracy theorist, a guy called Jim Mars, who wrote this book. Um, oh, what was it called? I can't remember. But he mentions the Protocol of Zion being a fake. And then that, and I was like, oh, okay. And then I looked into it much further and to the point where I actually interviewed the guy who translated the book. Um, and that for me was the beginning of the end of conspiracy theories for me. Um, and it was that kind of exercise that um, helped me kind of get past it. Um, because the thing is, no matter, once I'd found out it was a fake, it was amazing how many people just didn't want to believe that. Um, no matter you know how you reasoned with them, they just were like, well, there's some truth in it. And it's like, you know, how do you reason with that? I, I just couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't get past it. So uh, I think that was the definitely the beginning of the end for conspiracy theories for me. Well, let, let me make a small confession. Back yeah. in 2006, mm. when I was uh, just starting uh, this show, um, I had I had been working uh, in computer science, and uh, I had not had any real exposure to uh, this the whole community of science communication and um, and debunking nonsense in pop mm. culture. Mm. So when I started my podcast, um, I was probably pretty darn susceptible. And I actually consciously made a choice uh, one day when I was writing my first episodes. I was saying, hmm, what kind of show should this be? Should this be a skeptical show? Or should this go the other direction? And I could have made Skeptoid could have been a pro paranormal, pro conspiracy theory show. And if I had gone that route, I might have I might have mentally gone down that road and actually become one of the true believers. Um, it was about that time also that somebody showed me Loose Change. You know, oh the, yeah, yeah. Nine Eleven, the Nine Eleven movie. And um, I watched a little bit of it and then heard that there was Screw Loose Change, yes. which if people have not heard, don't watch Loose Change, watch Screw Loose Change, because it, it incorporates all of Loose Change, plus it pauses every five seconds to give you a 30-second explanation of what's actually the facts. So it's much, 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 much longer, but it's much, much, much more interesting as well. And so I watched Screw Loose Change, and that was really a, a moment for me saying, wow, um, clearing away the bullshit with, pardon my French, with, um, with, uh, with facts is a lot more interesting. And um, 
I, I, I won't deny that if I had not heard of Screw Loose Change and had just watched Loose Change while I was just starting the show, it it might have been a very different show and I might be a different person. I mean, I've, I've grown tremendously personally in the 10 years that I've been, 10 plus years that I've been doing Skeptoid. Um, and uh, it is it is absolutely something that can consume anybody. It's got nothing to do with your intelligence, your background. Uh, there's probably some correlation to uh, amount of higher education that you've had. Uh, beyond that, I think uh, conspiratorial thinking cuts across demographics pretty comprehensively. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's interesting you mentioned those films because, I mean, the, the and again, I mean, this is films in general, uh, and being a filmmaker myself and yourself, I mean, if it, films can be very manipulative, um, consciously and unconsciously, and it's a very sure. powerful medium. And um, like with Loose Change, it's a very compelling film, and it, and it, it you know, and, and you kind of, if you believe in the authority of the film, you can walk away really thinking 9-11 was an inside job, and then you start looking up at other dodgy films, like I think it was Alex Jones's film, um, there's quite a few now, but there was one in particular, The Road to Tyranny, I think was the one that was of interest to me, and you watch, if you just watch those two films, it'll, you can walk away thinking, oh my goodness, it's all true, because um, they just bombard you with, well, with, I put in quotation mark, facts, um, and and unless you kind of can go through every single one of them, which Screw Loose Change does really well, um, you could walk away totally thinking um, that 9-11 was an inside job. And um, and obviously these conspiracy theorists, people like Alex Jones and stuff, they kind of, very much like an, a, a cult, they they tell you that there are people out there sort of trying to manipulate you and, you know, they, they kind of don't encourage you to question them. They they encourage you to question the people who, you know, who might be sceptical about this stuff. Um, and it, it really does become quite a difficult thing to come out of. Um, it, it, and and it, it, it's not just of fringe films on the internet. It's mainstream movies in Hollywood, oh, yeah. um, as we call them, shockumentaries. And it's stuff that we find on the History Channel and the Discovery Channel and Nat Geo, all of these networks that have titles that suggest that they have science programming, and often they do, but just as often they have the opposite of that. Um, and so many of these are films that I have to deal with directly on Skeptoid. Uh, Super Size Me was a, a film oh, yeah. that convinced people that uh, all the food companies are conspiring to make everyone drop dead suddenly. Uh, and it, it was just it was pure fiction beginning yeah. to end. Yeah. Uh, uh, what's uh, anything that Oliver Stone has done? Yeah. <laughs> uh, too bad because he was a, he was a great film director. And I, yeah. I, it's sad that he turned to just making these propaganda films that mm. Um, mm. were just, just mind boggling. Um, there was the one uh, Gasland. Uh, from a few years ago that uh, made fracking, um, put fracking into the public consciousness. Yeah. Uh, completely fallacious beginning to end. And um, people don't have any reason to think otherwise, and so people don't think to question it. And so as influential as loose change may have been to the conspiracy theorists on the Internet, movies like Supersize Me and Gasland mm. um, promote an equal amount of pseudoscience in the general public. Uh, so... People, people like us who are doing science communication and trying to promote uh, scientific skepticism, we're never going to go out of business. We're always going to be the underdog. 
Uh, and uh, we're always going to have our work cut out for us. And I'm not the first to observe that the current presidential administration in the United States is going to make science communicators' jobs a lot harder. They are. They are indeed. I mean, it's interesting because science is the key to some of this, or scientific understanding, because, I mean, like myself, I come from an arts background, and a lot of people I met during my time in conspiracy land, if I call it that, um, you know, a lot of them were not from a scientific background themselves. You know, they were some of them fellow artists, some of them were just, you know, you know, housewives or, um, you know, one of them was a dinner lady at a school I used to go to. Um, and then another one was a, a strange academic from Oxford. I must admit, I never found out exactly what he's an academic in, but <laughs> because uh, he he, uh, he liked my surname uh, and asked me if I was related to E.H. Carr, who's the author of um, <laughs> a, a very famous book. And when I revealed I wasn't related to E.H. Carr, he kind of lost interest in me. So <laughs> I, I never really found out much about him. But um, but it, like in, in Loose Change, they make, you know, they, and we'll go into that conspiracy, it's a good segue into that. I mean, they talk about controlled demolition and, and they, they say that the buildings fall at a certain speed. I think it's like nine seconds or something. And they say that somehow breaks the laws of physics. Um, but that's not true. <laughs> and, and no, that's, that's one, of those, one of those claims that's just so bizarre because, okay, so what are they saying? It fell faster than a building is possible to fall. So you're saying they... They put rockets on the roof to make it fall. Back. What? What are you saying? What? How does that support their 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 claim? I, it's it's weird. It is strange, isn't it? But let's let's go in. Let's go into nine eleven. Um, so there, you know, there are a few key theories. Um, the first one is about the attack themselves on the twin towers. Um, the second centers on a building, a very famous building now, Building Seven. The third involves the attack on the Pentagon, and the fourth centers around United 93. Um, so, you know, can you tell us a little bit about these particular theories and why, you know, if you can, why they're wrong? Well, uh, yeah, it, why they're wrong is um, <laughs> it's probably is 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 tough. Not yeah. because they're um, well evidenced or hard to debate. It's because they're so vague and they change daily. And there's no agreement even on what those conspiracy claims are. That's true. <laughs> uh, if you look at the if you look at the 9/11 conspiracies about the planes that hit the twin towers, let's talk just about that. I I have heard everything from they were robot planes uh, to they were missiles painted as planes to they were holograms to they were planes, but there was some weird things attached to them, and they had bombs on the wings. Uh, Everything, every possible, every possible permutation of fact that you can come up with, other than they were the American Airlines and United Airlines planes that actually took off full of people and crashed and no longer existed after that moment. The the official story, quote unquote, is the only one that is supported by every shred of evidence that exists. And so these people who are making up these alternate versions. Um, they don't even care what alternate version it is. They agree only on the claim that the official story is wrong. That's the only thing they agree about. There's, they're just as happy for those planes to have been holograms as they are for them to have been painted missiles. Um, and since they're just as happy, they're, they're happy to be that vague, it's not possible for them to present any evidence 
that the planes were holograms or painted missiles. One thing I'll say, just quickly, from uh, my own personal experience, you wouldn't believe the arguments people had over that. <laughs> over, oh. over the holograms versus the missiles versus the planes themselves. <laughs> I would. I would. I mean, I, I've got... When when I do when I was I haven't done a nine eleven conspiracy theory episode for some time. I did a, a, a series on them, trying to break it down into into chunks that were sized well for skeptoid episodes, which are short, you know, twelve minutes or so. And um, every time I would do one, uh, man, death threats would continue for months. Wow. Um, I went on Joe Rogan's show about three four years ago, and got I still get death threats. Uh, because man, you challenge Rogan on his conspiracy theories and, um, you know, he claims that he no longer believes them, but his, uh, there's an enormous segment of his audience who are absolutely dyed in the wool, hardcore conspiracy theorists, and they will stand for no challenging. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't recommend anyone go on that show, but, um, yeah, so that's a short answer for how do you how do you how do you disprove the nine eleven claims? Mm. There are no claims that are specific enough to disprove. No, well, there's this one that always comes up: this Building Seven. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can you tell us a yeah. bit about Building Seven? So, Building Seven. I mean, the the official story is Building Seven was one of a number of buildings that were um, heavily damaged when the twin towers fell. Uh, it was uh, lit on fire. Uh, the fires, there were just simply were no fire firefighters available because they were all either busy or dead. Uh, and um, those who were in the building were fighting a, a losing battle. And since they believed the building was going to collapse soon, um, the firefighters uh, withdrew. And shortly afterward, it did in fact fall. Um, and uh, there's a lot of video of that building collapsing. And you can see about the top half or two-thirds of it or so as it falls, and it pretty much just drops straight down. And people say, oh, it looks like a controlled demolition. So therefore it was. They claim that it fell exactly in its own footprint so that it wouldn't damage, uh, you know, secret government buildings around it. Uh, and that's not true. It didn't remotely fall in its own footprint. Um, it, it fell against two other buildings, one of which had to be uh, demolished and the other one uh, cost uh, billions of dollars to repair, uh, and um, it in fact doesn't look anything like a controlled demolition. Uh, once I once I sat down to uh, examine that question, did Building Seven actually look like a controlled demolition in the fall? Well, the answer is no, because if you pull up videos of controlled demolitions, and and the best way to do that is just to go to the website of the world's largest company, Controlled Demolition Inc where they've got uh, tons of video of all the jobs they've ever done, and you can watch more controlled demolitions than you can shake a stick at. And not one of them drops the way that Building 7 did. They all pull it down from one end, or they'll drop it in the middle first and bring the ends down on top of it. They never drop the entire thing all at once, at least not a building that, that shape. And the other thing that it differs from a controlled demolition as you can see, in every real controlled demolition, it's triggered by explosions throughout the building right before it drops. And that was completely missing in Building 7. It just dropped. So there were no triggering explosions, and it did not fall in a way consistent with a controlled demolition. So, again, uh, and of course, many people have pointed out that when you do demolish a building with explosives, it takes uh, weeks or months of preparation 
You've got to expose all kinds of beams. All the beams that are going to be cut, they have to be exposed. They have to have the shaped charges put on them and fastened to them in a very specific way. They all have to be linked up so that they're going to fire in the right sequences and everything. It's a very involved process, and it doesn't happen while people are working in the office building not noticing any construction going on. So it's, you know, unless you go, you start pulling stuff out of the air like, well, it was rigged that way from the beginning, from when it was built. Well, again, that's something that would be trivial to prove by simply finding a single construction worker or a blueprint or or anything that a photograph someone took of bombs being attached to the building while it was being while it was under construction, which I think would have attracted some attention. Well, this is it. And who'd want to go in a building with bombs in? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <You> know? I know. <laughs> even the, you know, even the Illuminati, I don't think, would be that desperate. <laughs> but there we go. <laughs> so how do how do you how do you debunk the nine eleven conspiracy claims? I mean, you you can't because there's they're not they're not based on evidence. They're based on you know our native hardwired paranoia. Our our desire for there to have been a malevolence, a malevolent intelligence behind what happened. Yeah. Well, thank you for all that. Uh, conspiracy theories are sort of were once on the fringe, I suppose, pre the internet, and um, but now they're becoming sort of mainstream to the point where the current president, uh, Donald Trump, was actually a guest on the Alex Jones show only, I think, last year. Um, why do you think conspiracy theories have become so popular today? <laughs> I think I think they've always been popular. They've always been. Um, I, I know from from my work researching episodes for the podcast that uh, conspiracy theory writings have always been out there. They have often not made it onto mainstream media because mainstream media pre-internet uh, was very much a business, and it had to be successful as a business, and it had to be reputation still had a lot, and so generally, newspapers and things like that had to do pretty good quality work to stay in business. That doesn't mean that conspiracy writings weren't out there. They were. They were out there in a, in a great volume. Uh, one example, just off the top of my head, was the Flat Earth Society, which, as many people know, was really a, was devoted more to biblical literalism and proving the literal truth of the Bible than it was to science. And through the 20th century, what the Flat Earth Society became was really a police state conspiracy theory newsletter. And if you read some of the copies, it's, it, reads, it reads very similar to conspiracy websites today, like Natural News or Infowars. Um, so it was out there. It's just that the Internet has made it so much more accessible. And all of a sudden now that major media outlets really aren't a relevant player in what kind of content people will consume, the conspiracy outlets have been able to gain tremendous foothold. And certainly like shows like The X-Files have popularized them and obviously all the clones of yeah. The X-Files. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very much, very much. It's, 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 it, it makes for great fiction. It's, yeah. it's, uh, it's very compelling at an emotional level. And I don't know if you saw the most recent season of the x-files um but it was uh it was like watching um an alex jones video <laughs> in certain episodes it was uh 
it was uh, it was ticking all the conspiracy boxes. Uh, it was quite mad, but anyway. Well, if, if just going back to the original X Files, mm. the uh, the three guys, the lone gunman. That's it. Yeah. The lone gunman. Yeah, the yeah. lone gunman. Yeah. They were they were very sympathetic characters. Yeah. They were very much the good guys, and they were the info wars of of that world. Mm. <laughs> and they were presented as the good guys. They were the the heroic mavericks with the courage to stand up to the 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 you know geopolitical corporate government BS, and uh, it's a great example of how we want conspiracy theories to be true we want to we want to be the ones who reveal them we want to be the ones who have that superior insight mm. well, it makes it makes ordinary life very exciting doesn't it uh, you know because you're on this sort of secret detective mission almost trying to uncover all sorts of things very much that's that's a that's a huge part of it too uh, Promoting a conspiracy theory, writing about it, even just reading about it, you feel like you're Sherlock Holmes. You feel like you're uncovering this tremendous injustice. You feel like you're Robin Hood. Yeah. And, um, you know, again, speaking from experience of both myself at the time and some of the people I met, a lot of the kind of conspiracy theorists I met were not people who, a lot of them, you know, weren't, should we say, um, fulfilled in their work or they weren't really doing pursuing um, things that were really fulfilling them, but conspiracy theories were definitely filling that void for them. I can say from, from experience going to a lot of uh, skeptics conferences mm. where 99 out of 100 of the attendees are people who are very much on board with all of the debunkings of, of the conspiracy theories. Um, I can say from experiences, conversations with a lot of a lot of attendees, a, a very small percentage, but still a significant number of people who have the exact same um, mental process mm. as conspiracy theories. It's just that debunking the conspiracy theory became their passion, yeah. and they are as caught up and lost in their preferred version of the debunking as any conspiracy theorist is in his preferred version of the conspiracy. Uh, so it's a, it's really not an us versus them. Um, and I try to always keep that in mind. It's not an us versus them at all. And I also think back to what I was saying earlier about yeah. how I could have easily gone that route yeah. myself. And so I try to have a, a, a sympathy and, and an empathy for the conspiracy theorists. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, God, when I look back at my time, I mean, I look back on it now of extreme oh, yeah. embarrassment. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, it was, um, yeah, I just don't know, I, I don't know really what to say. It was just like, it was I, a, Well, yeah. I, I think, I think it's, I would love to have that experience, actually. You've got a great experience behind you now. You've got mm. uh, insight from both sides of the fence that, uh, that a lot of us won't ever have. I'm probably never going to go that route now because I'm so stuck in what I'm doing. Mm. Um, but I kind of wish I had just because I would be able to have your experience. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, yeah, it was very interesting. <laughs> I'll definitely put it that way. It was, uh, it was never a dull moment, especially some of the people I met. But uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it does. I don't know why. It just feels like a black mark on my, uh, um, my <laughs> school report or something. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> well, um, just quickly then. Um, I mean, there are many conspiracy theorists online today, but there are three people I've noticed who seem to have endured. And that's Alex Jones, David Icke, and Jeff Rents. 
Um, what do you think motivates these guys? And do they really believe in the information they're putting out there? Those guys, I, I believe they, they, they absolutely do. Yeah. Um, and, and, and again, bringing up John Ronson, who has spent more time with Alex Jones than, than anyone reasonably should mm. be first <laughs> yeah. to. Um, for some time, he thought that Alex was just a great showman and was putting together entertainment and knew it to be entertainment. Yeah. But he now says, based on all the time he spent with him, that no, he, he absolutely believes it. And he is so much wilder and crazier than, uh, and I, I, I'm using that word in terms of just being a, a, a flamboyant showman. I don't. I don't mean to suggest that he's crazy because I don't believe he is. Um, if he can believe it, then guys who are much less flamboyant, like Rents and Ike, I have no doubt that that they believe it too. Ike certainly. I've read enough of Ike's stuff that uh, there's no doubt in my mind that he's a true believer. Um, Jeff Rents, I haven't. I haven't read much of of what he actually uh, wrote himself. Mm -hmm. I. I find a lot of information on his website, rents.com, which has um, a, a whole spectrum of information quality because there's actually some very good skeptical writing on rents.com as well. Hmm. Um, you just have to find it. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, we're now apparently in a post-truth age in which people can present alternative facts in a debate. Um, so, Brian, what are your thoughts on this, and how do we debate and challenge people who claim to have alternative facts? <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I really think the um, the best way forward is not to engage with that, but just continue to present good information and continue to try and make it as entertaining and engaging as possible. That's what I'm. That's what I'm doing anyway. Yeah. I I don't think that there's any upside in trying to argue with um, with the yeah the 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 new reality of information that's being fire hosed at us, um, because not only um, what's the way to say this? I'm not sure there is a way to say this. It's <laughs> not going to. It's not going to offend fifty percent of the people who might be listening. I mean. <laughs> In the United States, and I think many countries, are 50% liberal and 50% conservative. Yeah. And so at any given time, depending on who's in the White House, 50% of the people are happy and they cheer and applaud everything that comes out of the White House, and mm -hmm. the other 50% uh, hate it. Mm -hmm. And um, and I think that anyone who says that this 50% is always right and this 50% is always wrong, I believe that's an indefensible position. Yeah. And... Though I may personally feel myself more attached to uh, one of those halves than to the other, um, I work hard not to not to have that influence um, the communication that I do. Yeah, because I don't want to offend fifty percent, and because I know that it's not true that fifty percent of the people are wrong and fifty percent of the people are right. I, I think people need to open their – everyone needs to open their mind more to the possibility that their own side is uh, not immune to alternative facts of, of their own. Mm. And when I just say that, I'm offending 100 percent of people because, <laughs> because everyone is saying, no, my 50 percent is the right 50 percent. <laughs> well, there was this term that – I, I first heard this term, again, back in my conspiracy days, the term echo chamber. 
Um, yeah. and, and we talk a lot about it a lot more these days and people have their online communities and they kind of find their own little bubbles and stuff. And then people, it's very easy nowadays for online lives to kind of be stuck in your own little echo chamber. And I think, you know, it's very, it's very healthy, I suppose, to try and find a way past that and to engage with people of different opinions, whether they're, you know, spouting off nonsense or not. Um, I suppose it's just keeping perspective on what they're saying is the key, isn't it? I, I will do something I don't often do, which is recommend a specific episode of a specific other podcast, which is um, the You Are Not So Smart podcast. I believe the episode was number 88, yeah. where they interviewed um, a pair of, I, I believe these guys were uh, behavioral economists. I'm not sure. Um, but uh, the research that they've been doing was on um, how to be persuasive to people of, of the other political party. Interesting. <laughs> and the uh, a perfect example would be how would uh, liberals persuade conservatives of the reality of global warming? Yeah. Uh, and that seems like an insurmountable task. Mm. And so it's a great example. And... Um, what these uh, researchers had found was that liberals and conservatives, they both have strong moral values. They just have different moral values. Mm. They place emphasis on different value systems than, 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 than the opposing party does. And all you need to do if you're trying to persuade a liberal of something that's typically a conservative perspective or mm. vice versa mm. you just need to understand what their moral values are and to couch your argument in those terms yeah um so you want for example to 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 persuade a conservative of the reality of global warming you would want to make it a a patriotic issue you would need to find ways that that would benefit um make america strong would be to recognize global warnings. You'd need to find an argument that would couch it in very patriotic terms, uh, and it's it, it's fascinating. It's, um, it's, uh, it's 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 very much what I've always tried to do is try to find the persuasive evidence um, and keep it keep it out of the uh, avoid the need to have a foundation of a particular ideology in order to accept an argument. Um, but to base it strictly on things that nobody can argue with because they're simply science facts. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Just quickly then, um, I feel like you may have already answered this, but I'm going to um, ask it anyway. But um, belief in conspiracy theories can become quite destructive in individuals. And I personally became quite depressed at the peak of my belief. And I saw many people become mm. more and more withdrawn from friends and family. It is almost like being part of a cult, yet these days the cult is more virtual than a physical one. What would you advise friends and family to do to help someone who they know has become a conspiracy theorist? Well, um, I, I've had this conversation many times with uh, people in psychology, and um, I'm, I'm fairly confident of the way that I, that I answer this question, which is a fairly common question now, and that is to, um, most of the time, do nothing. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I did a special episode of my show uh, exactly in this. It's called What to Do When a Friend Loves Woo. <laughs> like Search skeptoid.com for what to do when a friend loves woo. And it it basically comes down to the context. And this is you're, you're really asking the same question as when should someone seek treatment for mm. a, a psychological issue of any kind that they've got. And that... It, 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 that answer, that question is answered by saying, when do they cross the line um, 
to the point that this is affecting their lives. It's impacting their ability to live a normal life. Uh, and all of our friends who buy juice cleanses because they think that it's ridding their body of toxins, they are all stuck in a pseudoscientific belief that has no evidence behind it whatsoever, and they're wasting their money. However, they are also able to go through a perfectly normal, healthy life. The only thing you're going to accomplish by engaging that person and trying to attack their belief in juice cleanses is you're going to piss them off. Mm. And you're going to sacrifice a personal relationship for very little potential of changing their mind. So I say most of the time, do nothing unless it's to the point where it's impacting their lives. Now, you say that uh, some of the people you've engaged with, um, I, and, and I have too, I've, I've encountered people who have lost their wives, lost their job, um, lost their home um, in pursuit of a pathological uh, belief, some sort of some, something they've become impassioned about. Um, sometimes it's a skeptical perspective. I do want to emphasize that. Mm. It is just as possible to be pathological about a skeptical perspe perspective as about a, than it is for a pseudoscientific or conspiratorial perspective. Um, those people should, there should be some sort of an intervention with those people and they should seek some kind of psychological help. Um, lacking that, I think it's not worth the, uh, I think it's not worth the cost of the personal relationship in most cases. Yeah. Well, Brian, thank you so much, uh, for joining me today. I've really enjoyed our chat and, um, you know, certainly there's a lot of things I've taken away from that today. And I think a lot of people listening to this, especially in today's sort of, um, should we say online political climate at the moment, I think there's a lot of things that will be universal to people. Um, so thank you for all that. And where can listeners find out more about you and your work? Come to Skeptoid.com. <laughs> Skeptoid.com is, uh, is the podcast. And Skeptoid.org is the nonprofit that produces the podcast and, uh, and the other projects that we're doing. Um, two movies right now, mainly the one that I've been talking about, Principles of Curiosity. So Skeptoid.org has some great information about our other projects, but Skeptoid.com is, is the main one um, for, the, for the podcast. That's where I spend most of my work every week. If you've enjoyed the show, please spread the word by connecting with us on Twitter by going to at DryCleanerCast. For more information about the podcast, please visit our website, www.drycleanercast.co.uk Thank you for listening to the Dry Cleaner Cast. 